Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we are joined by ITA CEO Tim Russell for a little State of the Union heading into the 2023 college tennis season. Of course, it's exciting times right now in the college tennis universe. It feels like more frequently now than perhaps ever before you see so many players on both the men's and women's side making that successful transition from the collegiate level to the pro circuit. I wanted to ask Tim Russell why he thinks that's the case and talk about the improved depth, increasing parity we see within the college game. Of course, I also wanted to pick his brain about the 2022 ITA All-American Championships. Our Cracked Rackets team was so fortunate to be on the broadcast for the symbolic opening of the college tennis season. Wanted to ask the ITA CEO how he thought that opening week of the year went. Of course, I also wanted to pick his brain about some of the proposals up in the air right now. Will NCAA individuals be moving to the fall? What about the rise of national indoor championship events, not just at the Division I level, but we see it at the NAIA level this year as well. Wanted to talk to Tim about all the latest developments happening within the college tennis world. Of course, if you're going to do a State of the Union on college tennis, probably no better guest to have than the ITA CEO. So I guarantee this is a conversation college tennis fans will both be interested and enjoy, of course, even at the start. Have to give a massive shout out, as always, to Tim for his candidness, thoughtfulness, kindness throughout the course of this interview. With that in mind, I'm telling you folks, this is an episode all you college tennis fans are going to enjoy. Of course, a shout out to our friends at Swing Vision for their support. If you want to learn more about how Swing Vision is at the forefront of all artificial intelligence technology developments happening with in our sport. Just go click on the link to Swing Vision in the description to this podcast. But with that said, let's get into it. Here is my conversation, a state of the union in college tennis with ITA CEO, Tim Russell. Hey, crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link to get signed up? Just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website. You set up your account. You download the app. You get rocking and rolling. Get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a man who can only be described as a returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. Of course, a man you know best as the CEO of the ITA. Please welcome back onto our show, Tim Russell. Tim, it is great to see your smiling face. The 2022-23 season is officially underway. How are you doing, my friend? We're rocking and rolling and always a pleasure to be with you. 
Uh, it is a pleasure to have you back, and obviously a bunch of different things I want to hit on today, but let's just start with the most recent history. ITA All-Americans in the books, another fantastic event. Obviously, you had the D1 action for the women in Cary for the men. They were over in Tulsa this year. We'll just start there. How did you think the opening dare? Well, first of all, I guess, is in your mind the All-American the unofficial kickoff of the college tennis season? And beyond that, how do you think it went? First of all, yes. And <laughs> it was great. I mean, college tennis is strong. Uh, and the reality is uh, the competition was amazing. Uh, I spent uh, the entire main draw uh, in Tulsa. Uh, and uh, Corey Brooks and Dave Mullins were in Cary, which is a new site uh, for us. And I think you know that the All-American has an incredible history. And uh, Vince Westbrook and the University of Tulsa and the city of Tulsa have done a great job for us for many, many years. And the first thing that struck me personally there was how high the level was and how much parity there was. And the entire tournament was incredibly exciting, singles and uh, doubles and it obviously culminated with that very unusual uh, uh, event in the championship men's singles with two University of Georgia uh, gents with uh, Ethan Quinn uh, beating his his colleague uh, and the reality is the doubles was also exciting North Carolina and South Carolina in the finals but even before I got there what struck me just following it online was how strong things like the pre-qualies and the qualies were. There was a player uh, from University of Florida. It's the second time it's happened from uh, Florida where a player made it all the way from the pre-quali through the qualies into the main draw, which is a pretty astonishing uh, 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 turn of events. And then I think everybody was very excited uh, to have the women go to Cary. Uh, the Cary Tennis Center obviously does a fantastic job and has for many uh, years. I think that uh, competition there also amazing. You got, I think, three North Carolina women into the semifinals, which I think might even say something about the future of the spring and what have you. We'll get to the spring later, but uh, whether it was singles or doubles, in the women's event also strong. And quite honestly, we were really excited about the partnership we had with Crack Rackets and to be able to actually uh, have some really strong streaming because one of the things we're committed to is not only providing events of distinction for our players, but also trying to provide uh, the opportunities for fans to actually watch tennis. Yeah, I appreciate everything you said there. Let me just say a veteran move, throwing a compliment my way to end your <laughs> answer because you knew it would butter me up properly. And obviously, I'm immensely grateful for that. Immensely grateful that we had the opportunity here at Crack Rackets to broadcast all the action. And I do want to talk about that. But you brought up something that I would agree with you is my number one takeaway coming out of this ITA All-American. And that's the quality of college tennis we see right now. And as always, I wouldn't be prepared if I didn't have some stats for you. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm a little bit behind on my WTA stats, so I apologize for that fact. But there are 11 men right now in the top 100 of the ATP singles rankings. That's pretty cool. Let me tell you the real cool number. There are 34 men in the top 100 of the ATP doubles rankings right now. And it's not just, you know, the fluffer, oh, we've got the 78, the 76, the 82. No, right now, you look at the top 10, six of the top 10 doubles players in the world played college tennis on the men's side. You're going to see that same number translate particularly in doubles on the women's side. Although, just a reminder, Danielle Collins was a 2022 Australian Open finalist. Jennifer Brady, 2021, I believe, Australian Open finalist. We are not that far removed from seeing college tennis players have success at all levels of professional tennis. Now, the obvious thing, you know, how, how does that help our product is the obvious question, I think, that to ask someone like you is, how do we capitalize on that fact? How do we take the growth we see of college players in the pros and funnel that excitement into the college realm? Because to me, that feels like the question for all of us moving forward. Yeah, happy to answer that. Uh, on a number of uh, planes, 
One is I think you've heard me many times and others have say that college tennis is the connective tissue in the tennis ecosystem. It is not only a pathway and goal for junior players and not just American juniors, but junior players around the world because college tennis is uniquely American, but it's also one very viable pathway to professional uh, tennis. And, And you're great with the stats. My last call, Alex, was actually with Rafael Belmar Asuna, who's the nephew of Rafael Asuna, who at one time was the number one ranked player in the world and the number one ranked player in college tennis, right? There was a 1962 and 63 uh, team at USC, and you had uh, their crosstown rivals at UCLA, including Arthur Ashe and Charlie Passarell, but we're having the... uh, the Asunas and the Dennis Ralstons and the Stan Smith. So I think we've got a long and proud tradition, but we went through kind of a dry spell. So, you know, without making this about me, but I know people like me and David Benjamin, John Bogosian and others spent, you know, 20 some years as volunteers with the USTA talking about college tennis as a pathway. And now we have Martin Blackman, who's the Uh, managing director, general manager of USDA player development, who believes that college tennis is a pathway. Uh, And and the numbers bear it out. If you look at the U.S. Open, uh, you have guys like Lou Scher, who's the new CEO of the USDA, talking about the importance of college tennis. So one, the fact that all of us are talking about it is important. Two, Again, to give a a great shout out to our ITA communications team, they've done a great job of covering college players during Grand Slams. If people follow us, and I will always give a call to action, I hope people who listen to interviews like this, one, follow the ITA website every day, two, start following us on social media, and that is not only Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, but our staff did a great job of following all the college players through the U.S. Open. And mind you, we do that intentionally. You know, the reality is those aren't our events, right? But we're making sure that people make those uh, connections. So obviously it's a great story, but all of us need to tell the stories. And you're one of the masters of of telling the story. So thank you for raising that as a, as an important issue. Yeah, no, I will say it brought me both pride and a little bit of shame because our dear friend, Joe Gentry texted me after the all American. And he goes, when was the last time a freshman won the men's singles title? And I was like, well, which Virginia player do you want to talk about? Alex Damajan or Mitchell Frank? And I was like, is it good that I know that off the top of my head within 30 seconds? I was like, oh, I've got two freshmen for you right away. And so, no, to your point and this is not to disparage anyone in the past but it does feel like right off the bat I mean you could tell at all the slams you can tell particularly throughout the course of the ITL American weaving in not only the success certain players were having on court but how the successes they had during the summer whether it be on the ITA summer circuit whether it be at the ITF level uh, getting those stories communicated to college tennis fans everywhere I think is an important element and something you guys are doing quite well. Well, thanks. And if we actually keep telling just a few of those, obviously Ethan Quinn had a great summer, Uh, but, but the reality is, you know, when the ITA did its uh, leadership awards weekend and we honored not only students and coaches, but alums, clearly we had people like Peyton Stearns and we had Ben Ben Shelton. And and even yesterday I'm watching the tennis channel, very proud to watch JJ Wolf, you know, playing in Florence. And even though he lost in the finals, I think JJ's up, you know, in the top 55 or 56 now. And if we connect that back to the all American, you know, this does get personal. I remember watching JJ Wolf, you know, uh, play in the finals in, in, in Tulsa. And all of a sudden, you know, here, here he is top 50, uh, you know, in, in the world. And, and if you think about Nuno Borges, who played him in the finals, I remember watching Nuno play Ben Shelton at the U.S. Open. I mean, these are college tennis players who are coming through ITA structure, all Americans playing in the summer. They're playing professionally, and they're ending up at the top of pro tennis. It's a real story. No, Max Cressy, and I'll say this so you don't have to, he was bad. 
his freshman year at UCLA. Like a bad tennis player. Had the frame, had all these pieces you'd like, but you did not see top 50 pro in his future. Spends a couple years with Billy Martin, that UCLA staff, works his way. You know, that final 2019 season, he loses one dual match in singles, and now you see him in the top 50 of the ATP rankings. You're absolutely right. We've talked about the generational change happening on both the ATP and WTA tours. A lot of that is fueled by these college players coming and having immediate success. And, you know, again, that gets me back to as we look at college tennis, it is so fascinating. 2019, 2021, now, you know, Shelton Wolf winning. They're on their way to the top 100. No pressure, Ethan Quinn. You know, it's not as though you've got some people ahead of you. But again, you made a comment there as well uh, that I just would like to follow up on because I know this is something that college tennis is constantly grappling with. There are a lot of international players who play within the sport of college tennis. And I do wonder, as I look at the game moving forward and how we continue to grow this fan base, and I hope you'll indulge me when I say we, because I think I'm pretty invested in this now. I've dove, <laughs> I've dove head first. I feel like the international aspect really gives the sport a leg up. I feel like our ability to set, you know, again, maybe there's someone in Portugal who was following Nuno, who says, hey, I am now a Mississippi State fan, and I've got the maroon shirt out here in Estoril, where everyone's asking me, Mississippi State? Like, explain that to me. You know, so often we hear people try to disparage the international spin in college tennis. I think that's a massive help for us moving forward, and I'm curious if you feel the same way. Yeah, I'll be happy to speak to that. I have always said that tennis is a global sport. Yes. And the global nature of our sport is actually a strength of college tennis. And quite honestly, I think over the last 10 years, we've done a good job of having less disparaging. And I don't want to turn this interview completely into this topic, but I have strong opinions and always have. And people who know me know that. Uh, And the fact is, every college president, you know, in America, and we have 1,250 college presidents, are talking about the global nature of higher education. And they actually believe that international tennis players help with the narrative of the international flavor of their entire uh, higher education enterprise. It also makes our sport stronger, quite honestly. And I can also tell you that just from an interpersonal relations perspective, once an international player joins a team, whether it's with Manny Diaz at Georgia or Billy Pate at Princeton or Brian Calbus and Tyler Thompson at North Carolina, nobody's talking about that they're all just part of the tennis community and that, you know, tennis team. I also think uh, that with our partners and colleagues at the USTA, they recognize that the charge is just to develop more and better American junior tennis players, right? Mm -hmm. And the final thing I'll say, and I could talk about this for a very long time, is there just are numbers, right? I mean, the fact is we have about 20,000 college tennis players. And if you look at how many top American juniors there are, they're just not enough to fill all the you know, the spots. And so the reality is uh, tennis is a global sport. It's probably the second or third most popular sport in the world. And it's definitely a strength of college tennis. And uh, we need to be proud of it and and continue to tell those stories as well. I agree with you to beat the best or to be the best. You have to beat the best. That's how you say that phrase. And guess what? The best aren't always born in the United States. Like to have that ability to watch again to, and compete with the Nuno Borgeses of the world, to have that opportunity to compete with the now head coach of Arkansas, Christina Sanchez Quintanars of the world, just all of these different players. Uh, you know, Perez Somariba, obviously from Miami a few years ago, all of these different players. It just adds to the amount of talent we see in the sport and makes it better for everyone. And you talk about filling spots. You know, it's not just Division One college tennis, which is typically Typically, our focus here at Crack Rackets, I've made it a New Year's resolution each of the past three years, do better, focusing on D2, D3, NAIA. And I know this is a big year for NAIA, as we will have the introduction of the NAIA National Indoor Championships. Now, a fun fact for you, my dear friend, Tim Russell, head coach of the Kansas Wesleyan men's and women's tennis program, Josh Molino. 
my high school tennis coach. So that connective <laughs> thread, you talk about it. It's We're everywhere. We're coming for you. This was our uh, our dream back in the 2012-13 sort of days, Tim, just so you know. But talk to me about the importance of, again, uh, and the rise of all you know, four levels of college tennis. I didn't want to forget junior college either. I think I might have in that, so I apologize. But and what it means to have an NAIA national indoor championship. So, so that was a great, great transition. But I want to connect a couple other threads. Please, this is what I love. Well, so one thing you said is, you know, to, to to be the best, you have to beat the best, and a number of the best are international players. I want to be clear that a number of the best are also American, very true, tennis players. So I didn't want to interrupt you because you were on a a roll. But the other thing I want to say is, when I took this job in 2015, I made a few declarations that are very similar to what you said. One of them was, while it's easy to be a fan of D1 tennis and particularly the top of D1 tennis. I said that I was going to and the ITA was going to serve all of college tennis. And we serve, you know, five divisions, NCAA divisions one, two and three. And then we clearly have NAIA and, you know, junior college. And since I've been here, we've done a number of things that I think uh, that the coaches and players and fans of those in the non-D1 space have appreciated. We now have five different operating committees at the ITA, not just a D1 and a quote, small college, but we've added since I've gotten here, not just this new NAIA indoors, but the the, the D2 indoors wasn't there uh, as well. So I can tell you that part of what I'm proud of is the great work of the amazing ITA staff, because much like you and much like me, they are passionate about college tennis. They come to work every day on behalf of our 3000 coaches and 20,000 student athletes, 1250 schools and 1700 programs. But all of a sudden we had these indoors and the D2 folks were going, Hey, where's ours. And then, you know, we've had the leaders of people like, uh, Chase Hodges at Georgia, Gwinnett and others going, hey, wait a minute, where where's ours? But you have to recognize, and I'm sure you and others do, how much work this puts on the loads of the ITA staff. And we have not increased the size of our championship staff or communication staff. They just keep working, you know, harder and I hope uh, smarter. But this is a big deal because the NAIA schools have been you know, an incredibly important part of our journey. And to also do another little turn here, we just finished the ITA Cup. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody talks about the All-American and hopefully we'll talk about the fall champs that are coming up. But we just finished the ITA Cup at the beautiful uh, Rome, Georgia Tennis Center. And uh, all of a sudden there is a national championship for D2, uh, two, three NAIA and junior college. And I think since... Uh, uh, I've been here. Uh, our team has done an amazing job elevating that championship as well. So uh, I think all parts of our sport are strong right now. If you will allow me to prod that a little bit further, can you discuss the genesis of that ITA Cup? Because that's another fascinating event. And again, would I hate seeing D1 champions thrown into the mix at that ITA Cup? No, I would not. That's a secret between us. You don't have to tell anyone. <laughs> um, but I love the idea of interdivisional competition always. And so again, if you don't mind, explain the genesis of that ITA Cup, people who might have missed it this year, what they can look forward to in the future. Yeah. And you make a couple other very nuanced and sophisticated points that I'll try to <laughs> yeah. we- weave together. Well, One this is why we that- work well together. You just get me. <laughs> One of the things I said when I took this job is we needed more interdivisional play. And there were some actual impediments, including how our ranking system was built. And one of the things the ITA did was to take out uh, a good number of those impediments. Uh, Now, back to the ITA Cup, trying to crown champions for uh, D2, 3, NAI, and junior college. What always happened and still happens is – the grand champions winners, sometimes it was called the Super Bowl, what have you, mm-hmm. actually get to compete in the fall championships. And there is a case that can be made, and we have not done a good job telling it, that in theory, a player from any division could win our fall championship. And I'll give you an example in the past. So one 
Uh, we had the fall championships in Newport Beach a number of years ago. There was actually a very talented set of D3 players. One year we had Yudis Chong from, uh, from Williams. And, and another year there was a terrific player from CMS. And one of the falls in Newport, the gal from CMS actually beat one of the Stanford players. So, you know, the point we're making is that there is a place for everyone in college tennis who wants to play. And the levels are certainly strong, much like I mentioned, we had uh, incredible players in the pre qualies of the All-Americans. I mean, some of them were worthy of playing in the main draw. It's the same thing that you can't just say, oh, you have a D1 player. They're necessarily markedly better than all the other D2s, 3s, NAIs. I remember guys like Kevin Confederak from Georgia Gwinnett, who I think made the quarterfinals, maybe in the, I don't think the semi, the quarterfinals out in Indian Wells of the fall championship. So the intersection of these players are, you know, re- really, really critical to the success of our sport. I'm not going to say the player's name, but I know there's a certain D3 player that every coach is asking, okay, what does he want to do with his extra COVID year? Because we've got a spot for him right now to walk onto our team if he would like it. And, you know, I could also argue that the best rivalry in college tennis right now, it's not Florida, Tennessee. It's not Michigan, Ohio State. It's not UNC, Texas. It's Chicago versus Case because they're battling at every big D3 men's event. And if you aren't locked into it, you really should be because, again, the quality of tennis, one through six, extraordinary. Uh, You mentioned it, though, ITF. Do ITA Cup winners still get wild cards into the fall nets? They do, correct? So so there is a process, uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but there (laughs) is a process, and and i got to back up about the ITA Cup. We expanded the draws correct again because people wanted to do that. So there's actually a wild card selection process because we no longer have what they call the Super Bowl. There used to be the four winners who would play off and then one person would get in. So there is still a representative from the ITA Cup, but it's not all four winners. That's what I like to hear. Well, obviously. This weekend, we had some ITA regional action happening around the country. That'll happen over the course of the next few weeks as we try to figure out who will qualify for the Fall Nats. Let's start with this. Second year consecutively, ITA Fall Nats going to be held at the Barnes Tennis Center, I believe. And you're shaking your head, which means I'm right. Shout out to the research um, team here at Crack Rackets. I know the case for Barnes, but I want to hear it from you. What is it about this Barnes Tennis Center that brings the ITA back? Yeah, so first of all, Ryan Redondo is now both the CEO of the Barnes Center, but I think he's called something like the executive director of the of the barn of the San Diego Youth uh, Tennis and Education Foundation. Ryan is not only an incredible human being and doing a spectacular job at Barnes, but he's a great friend of college tennis and the ITA having been a not only successful player, but a successful coach. So whenever we have the fall championships in November and it's outdoors, first of all, you need to have good weather, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, It it could be snowing someplace in the Northeast. So we've done the desert where we've been at Indian Wells. We've been in surprise Arizona, but uh, the Barnes tennis center is a beautiful facility. And when Ryan uh, took the job, I think he had one goal, which was to have a major junior Uh, national championship, which he does with the girls 16s and 18s hard court, a professional presence, which he now has an incredible presence and a national uh, college tournament. And so uh, they're good at running tournaments there. The facilities, fantastic. People like to go there. And we also try to make sure that we cover uh, the geography. So when we've had a number of events Uh, on the East Coast, let's say the NCAAs are back at Lake Nona this year, Mm -hmm. Uh, then all of a sudden you don't want everybody to have every tournament uh, in Florida, for example. So we've got Tulsa in the middle of the country, uh, Cary uh, in the North Central, and and then obviously having a California presence gives some balance to our entire 
season. Yeah, you know, as always, if you want that Midland event, just I know a guy. So say the <laughs> word, we'll bring college tennis here to Michigan. But you bring up a thought there, and this is a bit of a tangent. The rotating nature of host bodies in the college tennis universe. Obviously, Georgia, Athens, the McGill Tennis Center has meant so much to tennis fans over the years. You have the emergence of the national campus in Orlando. There have been national championships held at Tulsa, at Stanford. Obviously, last year we're in Champaign. Again, I fully acknowledge this is a tangent. There are many different components that go into this, but There has been a thought floating around our podcast amongst coaches who you talk with that college tennis would benefit from having one definitive home site moving forward. The way baseball, softball have their home sites, if if college tennis can say moving forward, Orlando is our place or whatever fill in the blank city may be, it would benefit the sport. I'm curious your thoughts on that thought uh, that, that it would benefit. So maybe uh, we should have another podcast. Is this its own topic? Well, no, no, no. I'm going to give a a brief. It's going to be like a great novel where you have the (laughs) foreshadow of, you know, the second volume. But this is a really important topic because we always like to think like futurists. We might not be futurists. There's an incredible woman whose name was Faith Popcorn, who actually wrote the Popcorn Report, who is a futurist. But let me try to give a brief overview. One There is currently before the NCAA's competition oversight, a proposal to actually move the division one NCAA singles and doubles championships to the fall. Mm -hmm. And by doing that college tennis in the D one space would define two distinct seasons. The fall would be singles and doubles spring would be the team. The only reason I'm mentioning that is a lot of these pieces would fit together in the same Rubik's cube. Now, as to the permanent host uh, uh, concept, that is clearly a worthy topic. Just so the listeners know, uh, the NCAA has the D1 sites already chosen through 2026. Mm -hmm. So uh, just so everybody knows, one of the biggest things that's happening in college tennis this year is that NCAA divisions one, two, and three Mm -hmm. are all going to be at the national campus at Lake Nona in Orlando in May. First time, not only for tennis, but any college sport has hosted three different divisions in the same place at the same time. This is going to be an opportunity to have a celebration of college tennis. We're also going to move our ITA convention from December to May to try to do what basketball and volleyball do in terms of hosting their coaches conventions around the final four. Mm-hmm. Having the men and uh, haven't read our website, you'll know that it's a great class that includes uh, Peter Smith, the Bryan brothers, Patrick Galbraith, Mike Franks, and uh, Brian Hainline. So it's going to be a really big event. But after that, next year, it goes to Oklahoma State and then Baylor and then Georgia, all great universities. To summarize the basic conceptual decision tree discussion is the idea of the benefits of being on college campuses versus the potential benefits you have to try to replicate the success that Oklahoma City and Omaha have had for baseball and softball. We can clearly not only argue that college campuses have been incredible hosts, and you've mentioned them, and we love going there, and we appreciate their hosting, but we can also be very clear that that um, hosting really encourage other places to build really great college tennis facilities, right? And you mentioned Tulsa. Tulsa hosted their first a championship at the Michael K Center in 2004, and they had been awarded that before actually uh, the facility was done. And whether you talk to you know Chris Young at Oklahoma State, there are people who've invested tens and twenties of millions of dollars. So that's been a great benefit. But then you've got this now, not only the national campus, but the USTA's complete engagement with college tennis now that didn't used to be the case. And the final variable that we could talk about later is how do you intersect broadcast, whether that's streaming or actually linear TV. So it's a great topic. Let's reconvene another time to go digging a little deeper into the weeds. Maybe we can get a little more granular. Yeah, I like that. I will ask, can I just do like 
10 minutes of stand-up as the intro to the coaching convention. <laughs> just bring me in for a quick 10. I think I've got a good set ready for <laughs> you. I'll keep it PG. Um, but, you know, again, we'll just we'll put that in the floater. That's that's for the later one as well. I've been working on my set. Um, no, that's I think that's something that college tennis fans are very happy to hear. And you're right. This is a separate podcast conversation, but I can't let that nugget go unquestioned. Otherwise, our listeners would get mad at me. I had heard and have been saying on the podcast that there was a proposal in front of the NCAA competition committee to move the individual singles and doubles tournaments to the fall. You are confirming that for us here. We now, you know, again, there, that, that proposal is in front of the committee, uh, correct? That is correct. Yes. Okay. And they've so, had the okay. competition oversight committee, also known as the COC, has already had one discussion about that, and they'll have another one uh, in November. Okay, interesting. So, you know what? I am going to reserve the right to bring you back then in November <laughs> or December to talk about those two things because I do feel as though that, again, it's a granular. If I were to ask you why was that proposal the right decision for college tennis, we've blown this interview wide open, right? And now I need to. Well, but I also am happy to give that answer. But so if please. we're going to in any way uh, keep the interview from running for several hours, that's oh, up to you. Say, but... Give me the quick two minutes. Uh, I say this lovingly, Tim. I don't have a life. I got nothing else going on today. <laughs> so please, uh, for uh, the short version of, if you don't mind, why was yeah, that? So the short version is we're always trying to look for what is the best future vision for what our sport should look like. Mm -hmm. Historically, that is a topic that's actually been discussed for probably 20 years, yeah. never acted on. Probably more, uh, if we're being in, honest. Yeah. So two years ago, uh, the ITA and the USDA actually engaged Snodgrass uh, partners, SP Athletics, to help us do a study that was called Reimagining Division I Tennis. We not only did a survey of our D1 coaches, but Snodgrass actually interviewed uh, about 50 college presidents, athletic directors, and Trump to get their take on D1 tennis. Our goal is obviously to keep our sports strong. How do we provide leadership in an ever-changing and fast-changing world? You just have to follow D1 athletics with NIL and the Austin ruling and the transfer portal and conference realignment to know that people who are running Olympic sports have to really be uh, keeping ahead of the curve. And the number one recommendation that came out of the Snodgrass report was that we should actually clearly define our two seasons because many of the decision makers don't understand the fall per se. Mm -hmm. And I think then from a perspective of what's currently now, there's a lot of people who believe that the singles and doubles in May is an afterthought. Everybody's fired up about the team. I think if, if you study enough of the uh, last number of years draws, there have been years where eight to ten out before the tournament started last year in a 32 doubles draw by the time they got the final alternates in they were down to 15 on the alternates list it's probably not the best thing for our sport so uh, when you make the case for why this is good one we can clearly define the seasons two we can do a better job of marketing it three everybody wants to talk about about TV, uh, the tennis channel, for example, is not interested in broadcasting the individual singles and doubles where it is because it now overlaps with the with French, the French. <laughs> Open. So we have a chance to actually uh, put the uh, singles and doubles right around Thanksgiving when actually it's a dead time in the pro tennis world. Uh, and I think uh, the reality is uh, it is, is also kind of in the interest of health and safety for students, which is a big issue these days. And Brian Hainline, Dr. Brian Hainline is the chief medical officer at the NCAA. He's going to become the chairman of the board, president of the USTA in January. And he's a big proponent of this uh, as well. Uh, if you look at our sport, it's a year round sport for juniors. It's a year round sport for the pros, the top college players who are the ones who are going to get in the NCAA are actually people take Ethan Quinn, for example, or some of the gals from North Carolina. These are serious tennis players. 
And I can tell you, having watched back to bringing our interview to where it started, Alex, the championship that I watched in Tulsa was as good as an NCAA singles and doubles championship as you want to, you know, to, to see, actually. So I think it gives definition uh, to the players. It gives definition to our sport. But the final thing I'll say, which could pique some interest, is that the format for selection will change. Okay. It will no longer be solely based on your ITA ranking. The concept makes this a play-in format. So there will be ways to play in through the All-American, the ITA regionals, possible conference championships, super regionals. And I think there's a, a lot of excitement. It gives us a lot of stories to tell. It also gives us a chance to actually say, what could the team season look like? We, we can't have that discussion as long as we're playing all the individuals things. Not that we're going to make a change, Alex, but what would it, for example, look like if spring tennis was a simultaneous format? Sure. You know, you know, we're always looking at time, for example. People say, why is volleyball on TV? Why is women's softball on TV? It's not only time to find, but, you know, there's a, a certain excitement to it. We all know that broadcasting a dual match has been hard and you guys have kind of mastered that at crack rackets but i think this proposal uh, has a lot of potential and i can tell you when i took this job in 2015 one of the first things i said is somebody who understood college tennis because my son was a top junior and a top college tennis player the fall never made complete sense to me you know and we had a task force that made some recommendations which we never acted on them and for the first about five years of my tenure i never took an active affirmative position and i can tell you that in the chair i sit in now i actually firmly believe this is the right uh, decision for college tennis and i'm hoping that the ncaa competition oversight committee actually approves it the final thing i'll say is if it gets approved it wouldn't go into effect until 2024 okay so that was the big question i was looking for the other one that again i will get thrown off this pot if i don't ask the wild card has the com i put a w on the screen it, again it's been a long couple of months here for us as we get ready for this 2023 season but i assume Everything has been in consultation with the USTA as well. You talked about them diving headfirst into college tennis. Not to say this is an, you know, you don't want to lose the NCAA wildcard, uh, the US Open wildcard, excuse me, that come along with NCAAs. Oh. And changing the format just puts things into question. I assume so that's been part of the thought process. Ha happy to answer that question. Yes. So the, the best way to answer it is to make sure that your listeners actually know what the current USDA wildcard policy is because okay. one of the things is that we have a lot of misinformation out there. So I, for example, as a fan of college tennis, long before I took this job was teaching at Arizona State, 19 RDC and wins the NCAA and gets a wild card into the US Open. I think he beat Michael Joyce in five sets because I sat and watched them all. But right now, the USDA's position is they reserve the right to give the NCAA champion a wild card if that woman or man is an American. Mm -hmm. So first of all, it's not guaranteed for an international player, but it's not even guaranteed for the American player. Mm -hmm. So they reserve the right to make the decision, clearly giving them to Ben Shelton and Peyton Stearns were easy things, uh, you know, to do. So anybody who thinks that it's automatically guaranteed uh, is, is incorrect. The next thing is that they have said that there's for the ITA and USDA written together this proposal. Oh, uh, you need to understand that uh, if somebody wins the NCAA in the fall, it's the intent, and I can't speak for them, but Martin Blackman we've spoken with, and I'm on calls with not only Lou Cher and Mike McNally and Brian Hainline, but it is their intention to continue. But the there are a few caveats I would offer. One is that the person's going to need to stay and play the spring, okay. right? Because a lot of people are worried, oh, they'll win the NCAA and then disappear. Yeah. I but love quite that honestly, And this is where I can't speak for the USDA, but the person's going to have to keep 
playing well, right? I mean, you looked at the summer Ben Shelton had, and he didn't get given that wild card till closer before the Open. So the short answer now that I've given you the long one is absolutely nothing has changed. So any coach who tells you, oh, I'm not in favor of this because we might lose the wild card, that's just not a very good answer. Hopefully that provides you and your listeners what they're looking it for. It does. Does... I don't want to get you. Does it frustrate you when you see, you know, to me, to me, Cleve Harper, Richard Ciamara, I know Cleve is Canadian. I understand the USTA is an American event that has to bring money to the American Tennis Federation. And that's not a shot at any federation. Let's just be clear. The U.S. Open, I'll say it, is what pays the bills for everything else. That's the moneymaker in the tennis, American tennis ecosystem. That said, and I'm really happy that... Richard and Jada Daniel ended up getting a mixed doubles wild card. I'll ask it like this. Does it frustrate you that sometimes there are technicalities pulled when it comes to like, well, Cleve's Canadian, so we're not going to just give it to this Texas doubles duo? Or, you know, again, there are no handouts. You're right. Does it frustrate you, though, sometimes the nationality technicalities? So, so I'm happy to answer this publicly because I'm the kind of person who not only says what's on my mind, but does it respectfully, but I'm saying publicly what the USTA has already heard me (laughs) say in Tim Russell's ideal world, I would love to have them go back to what illustration I just gave. To Sargis. Yeah. Sargis Sargisian. That said, I completely understand the USTA's ability to make their own decision. So I have lobbied for, you know, we're now connecting more dots, Alex, where you and I talked about the strength of the international game. So I've made my advocacy position to the USTA, uh, but I also completely understand and respect their ability to make their uh, you know, d- decision. So my publicly saying that I would love to have the winner of the NCAA get the wild card, no matter whether it's a, you know, a, a, an American or an international player, I, I, that is my position. Yeah. But, but the USTA gets to make the decision on their own wild cards, right? Yeah. And let me just say that is why we have always enjoyed you here at Crack Records. Not only do we think you do an excellent job, you know how to compliment us properly, but um, <laughs> you know you also are willing to say what's on your mind, which we are always grateful for. Last two questions because I've already kept you over time, and then I'll let you go. Conference realignment. A lot of it has to do with football basketball. That said, of course, tennis is inevitably going to get dragged into it. And I have been very clear from the start. I think the Big Ten should get the Ojai and everything that comes with getting USC, UCLA. If the Big Ten doesn't host its conference championships at the Ojai, we're not doing this correctly moving forward. That said, I'm curious, are you concerned? I mean, I, yeah, are you concerned with conference realignment influencing tennis? So, so I'll take a shot at that. And while I like to think of myself as a college athletic sport leader, yeah. not everybody asks my opinion on everything. I wasn't getting a lot of calls from <laughs> Kevin Warren at the Big Ten about his, 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 his realignment. I am concerned on a number of fronts. I'm concerned when Stella Sampras's team has to fly to Rutgers, for one yeah. thing. The amount of, of, of lost time and spent flying cross-country. If you study the history of college sports, early on, a lot of conferences were built just around geography, right? You know, so so I have uh, some concerns about, you know, things like that. But quite honestly, nobody's asking my opinion. So I'm more interested when we talked about being a futurist again is kind of creative solutions. You know, one would be what would college tennis look like as a federated sport that wasn't necessarily just based on conference model that could also intersect across divisions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and you, you mentioned Case Western, or it could be Emory, or it could be CMS or whatever. Um, but the other thing I do is study people who I really respect, let's say like Kathy DeBoer, who has my job running the AVCA, American Volleyball Coaches. So for example, they're looking at the Big Ten, and you're a Big Ten guy, and I grew up in the Big Ten, and they don't have a lot of men's uh, uh, volleyball in the Big Ten, right? They got Ohio State and Penn State who are very good. And I think Kathy's the kind of person who's, and I don't want to speak for her, but, you know, is creative enough to go, 
okay, what would it look like if we got, you know, Stanford and some, mm-hmm. you know, Pac-12 schools to be like affiliate members in the, in the, in the Big Ten. So I guess the point is the world is what it is, right? Sure. I already told you that I'm trying to manage in a world that's really challenging right now. And we have to be saying, how can we really support college tennis? The more interesting questions, let's take L.A., for example, is who's going to be the first person to build an indoor tennis facility so UCLA and USC can practice for the team indoors, right? Because they're now going to go play Ohio State and Illinois for indoor matches. So there's a lot of things that are going on, you know, with the, the, the table right now. But we will try to continue to be leaders to position college tennis for the most secure future going forward, Alex. Last point on that, you talk, and we're going full circle here, connective thread. College tennis brings together juniors, pros, all levels of the sport in one location. We have seen over the past five years in particular, and it started before the pandemic, but I think the growth has really accelerated since, pro events being on college campuses. How important is that for college tennis programs? And I'm curious, because I know the ITA, you know, pro tennis is not under the ITA's purview. That said, the benefits of pro tennis to college certainly are. Uh, I'm curious, as you look at that intersection, whether you think it's time to grow it, you know, what your approach is to that relationship. Yeah, so you're, you're now getting us into session three on our new podcast series. Yeah, Alex exactly. It's, it's called Alex has missed Tim. Let's catch up on things. So, 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 so that's another long one. I'll give you the short answer, Perfect. which is while I'm a big fan, as we've already said of college tennis as a pathway to the pros, I get concerned that there become too many expectations on what a college coach has to do. And we already have, a certain haves and have not mentality. We have a lot of junior players who come in and continue to ask how many pro events are you taking me to? We have ADs who aren't happy about that. But the idea that part of what you have to do is run a pro event on your campus I have some concerns about that. It's clearly easier to have your players play on campus instead of travel, but there's a lot that goes into not only raising the money, but running the uh, event. So that one, uh, you know, first of all, we don't run it, as you said, so coaches can make their own decisions. But I do spend enough time with enough coaches who are very honest about the challenges of not only what's involved with their job, but trying to escalate the expectations of what all the top programs have to do. Mm -hmm. I want to throw in one more just to make our listeners as mad as possible. This is actually the final question. Pro or anti-pickleball, where do you stand? Great question. That's session number four (laughs) for us. So for two years, I've been trying to get the ITA board to wrestle with the future of pickleball. Mm -hmm. Um, My wife has gone from being a longtime tennis player to a terrific pickleball player. I have the personal belief that at some point in time, there might be NCAA pickleball. So again, I always want to be ahead of the curve. I prefer to be an architect upstream and not a plumber downstream. Uh, And yet there's mixed feelings on our board and quite honestly with our coaches, you know, so there are other entities within the tennis ecosystem that are going full in. I'll give you an example. The PTR, Dan Santorum has been very forward thinking on pickleball. The USTA started slow with pickleball and has focused most of their attention on very practical things like courts and lines and whatever. Where we've come down at the moment is we're having serious discussions. We haven't made any decisions. We're encouraging coaches to possibly use pickleball as a way to get people on campus for, you know, pre-match, whatever. I do believe that ultimately if you follow pickleball, the top players are former college players. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're following pickleball, you know that Tom Brady and LeBron James just bought pickleball franchises. Kim Kleisters is buying a pickleball franchise. Pickleball is here to stay. You can debate whether it's easier or harder than tennis, but you know, if we end up having ESPN covering cornhole and spike ball, I do not think it's far away from thought processes to have 
college pickleball, especially when the tennis channel has basically said we're now in with pickleball. So I have played four times. I have trouble staying out of the kitchen because I usually come <laughs> and try to close at the net. Uh, my son who works for USTA player development uh, realizes that pickleball is great. He's become a great Padel fan, which he uh, thinks could be more exciting than even pickleball. So what I'm trying to do as a leader is to have our association have the conversations. I don't have any news here to break that we're becoming the, you know, intercollegiate pickleball association. But I think you are not a good leader if you're not looking at trends and trying to wrestle with how they intersect with the organization that you lead. A lot of good adjectives to describe you. Intelligent, handsome, candid. <laughs> I think another one, lengthy. Those limbs, probably an issue in pickleball. I can understand why things might get tricky for you, my friend, but that's good. I And this is not the best adjective to use it, but it's the only term I can come up with. To your point, I think pickleball is a gateway drug to tennis. It's just like if you are using pickleball, whether it is as an adult, maybe you'll say, okay, I have to play a pickleball, but I want my kids to play tennis because the tennis court's right next to it. And it's a little bit more physical and they're a little bit younger. And so I think it's very encouraging to hear that you are thinking about pickleball, how it factors in. And what that tells me is as your advocate, it's time for me to go do some wrangling. It's time for me to bring <laughs> in the coaches. Cause I know for instance, TCU does an exceptional job at hosting pickleball events at their facility which then brings people into your point and has them sticking around for the match. So I just think if you're if you're dismissing pickleball out of hands, a little editorializing here, uh, you are being stubborn. And so it's great to hear that, again, you at the ITA are already uh, also, adjusting for that. Also, Alex, as a guy who deals in facts, while everybody says pickleball is the fastest growing sport in the world, that's by percentage. If you really look at the participation study for tennis – pickleball and tennis both added a million players yes. last year it's just that a million is only five percent of 20 million <laughs> yeah, exactly. where a million is 20 percent of five million but i don't want to undersell the great work that tennis has been doing and i think that groups like the usda and the group called tiu of which we're a part did a great job through the pandemic of trying to promote tennis so i'll end with the comment that I started with, which is tennis is strong. I early on told you college tennis is strong, but tennis is really strong also. Let me just ask you this. Are you in on Carlos Alcaraz? I feel like you are a big Alcaraz fan. Oh, I love watching Carlos Alcaraz, but I can tell you, I'm just a tennis junkie. I mean, I mentioned that I sat for five hours watching Sargis Sar play <laughs> whatever. Jones, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, if I'm going to watch two 12-year-olds battle for three hours or yesterday, you know, wa wa watching the women's uh, finals, watching Coco Goff and watching Pagula or watching, you know, Danielle Collins, you know, play Vecic or whatever. I'm just a tennis junkie, but how can you not love watching Carlos Alcaraz. Uh, I think one of my favorite things of every big college event is knowing we will get there at 9 a.m., start preparing for everything. Who's going to wander in 10 minutes after us before the matches start? It's going to be the Russell family. And I know <laughs> you and Mrs. Russell locked in on the action. And that brings me sneaky joy as it's just like, good, I'm not the only tennis nerd out there who's locked in for the day. So uh, love yeah. having you. And obviously, it is always a pleasure to get the chance to chat as you've got the ITA hat on now repping it. You look wonderful, of course, and sincerely on behalf of all of us, you know, it's very easy to look at an ITA organization and say, I wish you were doing this. I wish you were doing that. All these different things. It's so clear that you guys are being responsive to what you are hearing, not only from annoying fans, but coaches, players, et cetera. But to that point, if you have a list, yeah. you know where to reach me. Yeah, it's very true. You'll be the first to respond. Send me send me the list. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tim Russell, right. I, immensely grateful. Oh, I was supposed to ask, split screen. Do you like the two box? Should we keep the two box moving forward? I like the two box. Okay, good. Because that's the key. I agree. When we can show men's and women's, it's just like, this is what college tennis is all about. And so appreciate your support. Always appreciate the chance to chat with you. Be safe. Be healthy. I'll bring you on for part five later on in this <laughs> offseason. See ya. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. 
a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with ITA CEO Tim Russell. I told Tim at the start of the episode, oh, I just need 30 minutes, I promise. And of course, we end up going nearly an hour. So a massive thank you to him for his tolerance of my nonsense. A massive thank you for his candidness as well. Always appreciate gaining insights in our discussions with Tim. And as we alluded to, without uh, throughout the course, excuse me, of the podcast, I think it's fairly certain we're going to have him back on the show sometime soon. But with that in mind, of course, it's almost time for the start of the 2023 college tennis season. We'll start previewing our top 10 men's and women's D1 teams in the coming weeks. Be on the lookout for those podcasts, for those articles on our website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, we are also so excited to be broadcasting the 2022 Fall Nats, that fall national event happening at the Barnes Tennis Center. I believe it's the first week of November. It's going to be available from start to finish on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel, so be on the lookout for that. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an any job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. A shout out as well to our friends at Swing Vision for their support of this podcast in particular. With that said, for our fantastic guest, ITA CEO Tim Russell, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Swing Vision, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Crack Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. Talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.